1: Like every other form of Marxism, critical race theory is a weapon and it is a tool that leftists use in order to convert violence and whining into power. It is driven by a contradiction, acceleration and annihilation. As faithful Marxists, critical racists want to destroy the world as we know it, and it is not hyperbole. They want to do it as quickly as possible as part of what Lenin called accelerating the contradictions. This is how Marxists start a revolution, and for them, revolution is violent by nature. Despite what critical race Marxists will tell you, this is not a conspiracy theory. It is literally written out in books and articles written by them. And today's guest has read just about every single one of them. In the words of Dr. Phil, yes... Dr. Phil today's guest has read so much CRT that he must read through his ears. He comes from academia and he realized early on that the so-called radicals self-appointed critics of society are pathologically narrow-minded and they are dangerous. We are all starting to feel the effects of all of this. My book is about the great reset it goes hand in hand with CRT. Today, perhaps for the first time, you will understand how the noose is closing around the neck of freedom all over the world. And we must pay attention quickly. Today's guest fights back. You can find him going toe-to-toe with anonymous radicals on Twitter, and he he's got a few Molotov cocktails himself. More importantly, he fights back using the secrets of academia against academia. He first made his name for himself by submitting ridiculous articles to peer-reviewed publications. If you don't know about the Grievance Studies affair, you have to look it up. It's hilarious and illuminating. He takes the fight to a whole new level in this new book, Race Marxism. The Truth About Critical Race Theory, and Praxis. Back for his third appearance on this podcast, probably the most important podcast perhaps that we've ever done. Please welcome James Lindsay. If the last two years have taught us anything, it is that you have to do your own homework and you have to take control of your own life and your own health. It is clear that you can't simply rely on government, big pharma, even your doctors or They'll lose their license if they're just trying to protect you and your family. I'm sorry, but I had COVID and I was not going to sit around and, and take some aspirin and call them if I felt I had to go to the hospital. That's ridiculous. This is where I learned about Z-Stack. Z-Stack is a specially formulated um, uh, immune boosting supplement that includes zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, vitamin D. I take it every day, and it was formulated by the doctor who helped me get through COVID, Vladimir Zelenko. He is the world-renowned doctor that everybody on CNN hates. Um, he, President Trump credited to him with the successful early treatment protocol and his decision to take hydroxychloroquine. Now z has been scientifically formulated it is kosher and gmp certified it is produced right here in america again i take it every day now more than ever we need preventative medicine we have to take control of our own health and our family's health z is formulated to help combat any and all variants as well as the flu so stay ahead just go to ZStackLife.com slash back, enter the promo code back, and you'll get a discount. Again, zstacklife.com slash back promo code back. James, welcome back. Hey, it's always good to see you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You are uh, you're very busy. You're very busy. I'm very busy. Uh, you wrote a book called Race Marxism, which I find fascinating and really important. Um, may I just quote here? Um, you want to offer analysis humbly to the world and free citizens as a means of, of understanding and resisting this terrible ideology at a crucial moment in history where it threatens us all in a way far bigger than most of us realize. Quoting All existing deep entanglements with critical race theory are almost totally useless. They either come from biased cheerleaders who present it in an unrealistically positive light, or from naive scholars who can't see the ideological forest for the philosophical trees that compose it. This book is the first comprehensive attempt at a remedy to this civilization threatening problem. And it has been written, perhaps, only just in time. Yeah. I don't think there's truer words spoken. Yeah, I I realized that this book needed to be written last summer, and I
2: sat down and wrote the bulk of the first draft in 10 days. I was so convinced
1: that it needs to be said. It needs to be said now. Um, How close to the edge are we? Because some people would say, come on, it's not that bad.
2: It's that bad. Uh, we are we are very close to the edge, but I'm I'm actually at a point of being somewhat cautiously optimistic Me too. now, right? So if if we would have had this conversation a couple of months ago, it would have been a little bit of a darker. Me it's like too. How close were we to the edge? We're falling off of it, right? Um, but no, we're 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 kind of dancing near the edge of it
1: uh, yeah. right now. But the, the and a lot of people are starting to stand up and go wait 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 wait. Yes, you know? I, I don't know if there's enough. And if they really understand what they're up against, but they're beginning to at least sense it, a lot of people are starting to go, wait, I think we're going in the wrong direction. Right. And especially with critical race
2: theory, particularly, I've noticed a dramatic shift. You know, I've been speaking publicly about it for a while um, and dramatic shift in the past six months where people are very confident and even informed enough to say, you know, roughly what the thesis of the book is. It's Marxism. This is Marxism using race it's and when people so, understand it,
1: it's Marxism I want you to do this I want you to do this podcast and talk to a parent like me who honestly you get so t- Marxism is gobbledygook it is and it, you read and you're like how does this make sense to anyone and so when you're explaining it sometimes people are using that and you get completely lost so talk to me as a parent tell me the difference between marxism and critical race theory or why critical race theory was as it is now why is why is it being put into our school okay so the only
2: real difference between marxism and critical race theory is that marxism focuses on centers is their word for it economic class as the that which generates inequality that's how you're going to understand inequality who's in which economic class Critical race theory does it with racial social class
1: instead. And this and and Marx, when he when he did this, it was because of the class he thought the underclass would rise up. But America showed that, no, 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 the underclass can rise with the with the rising ships as well. Right. Um, And so it kind of fell apart. So when did they switch to instead of those classes When did they switch to race?
2: The 1960s is the beginning. By the end of the 1970s, it was kind of a done deal. Uh, So in the 1960s, kind of the preeminent Marxist thinker of the time would have been Herbert Marcuse, Robert Marcuse famously wrote Repressive Tolerance, uh, an essay that says that we should tolerate everything from the left, but we should tolerate nothing from the right. We should censor the right, pre-censor the right. Don't even let them have the idea in their head. Boy, are we living that right now. We live in that essay. Yeah. But he also wrote exactly what you just said, is that in a country like America, the working class ends up stabilized. The working class ends up building a better life for itself. It can work. It can get a job. You know, you put some basic worker protections and monopoly protections in place so that they can't be too exploitative. Uh, You don't get the crony problems. And capitalism works. And the working class gets stable. And he says they become a counter-revolutionary force. And that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. And so he said what we need to do is we need to look elsewhere. We need a new working class. He says this specifically, especially in a 1969 essay called Essay on Liberation. He says, we need a new working class, that new working class. He says, we're going to look where to the ghetto population. That's his words for it. He says the energy in the black ghetto population, the black nationalists, black liberation movements, that won't be easily stabilized. That's where we're going to find it. And so he ends up with a student, Angela Davis, very famous woman, Mm -hmm. radical from the 70s, total communist, Uh, and she ends up kind of inspiring a generation of Marxist black feminism that has gone to take over everything, and critical race theory comes out of that. So the shift was in the decade following that 1964 book or 1969 essay, depending on which very influential thing of Marcuse's you want to point at, uh, in the decade that followed that through the 1970s, you have this rising black feminism that kind of starts taking over everything. And I say black feminism, and it means this is a Marxist ideology that's using race and sex as the, as their, their main tools at the same time to overcome capitalism, but also racism and also sexism on this new idea that all oppression is united. It's all kind of the same mm-hmm. thing. Uh, you can't talk about class without looking at race, without looking at sex, and they all intersect with one another. And so that's where this really...
1: Shift is there? Was there any anybody good at that time period that was putting this together that was not using this as a way to splinter America or capitalism? Was there anybody who said no? This is this will be good for all of us in the end. This will be. Do you know I what mean, I mean? This was, it was so niche at the time. I don't think so. I mean, Herbert Marcuse
2: certainly wanted to splinter. America. He said that these these societies that deliver the goods, he says what they do ultimately is they prevent people from realizing that we could have a utopia. And so you really got to splinter all of that thing. So I don't think so early on. I mean, it's certainly okay. the you know, civil rights movement. There sure, were sure, sure. people doing things, yeah, yeah. of course. But as far as what was the kind of genesis of this new identity-based Marxism or identity politics-based Marxism, no, I don't think so. I think the goal was always to Whether it's splintering or not,
1: but but to gain power, to gain power for themselves. Do people, I mean, leaders, do they really think that the utopia is going to happen this time? I know a lot of useful idiots do, but over and over and over again, it leads to massive death and destruction and starvation and you name it. Um, Do they actually believe or do or? Or do they know they're only positioning themselves for power? You know, I look at people like Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Mm -hmm. Forum,
2: and I think that they're probably true believers um, in very significant ways, especially Klaus. I think they believe that what's hindered, if you read the Marxism through the 60s, you get this sense that what hindered the Soviet Union was that it lacked the technology necessary to meet the production levels Necessary to have a thriving society. Capitalist society found production, but they have all this exploitation. And that was the big question that they were wrestling with. And so now with the advent of AI and with, you know, all of these new machines and robots and self-driving vehicles they want to unleash. I think they actually think we can pull it off now that, you know, the AI can predict distribution to get around... Um, the information problem that von Mises pointed out and said this is why communism and socialism don't work planned economies don't work because there's information being exchanged between the people engaging in a market and without that information you don't know what goods and services are needed so you have huge excesses of say steel or huge deficiencies of say bread and it doesn't get worked out but with super advanced AI well they can predict what you want and give you an advertisement for it before you even know you Correct. wanted it. So they, th- I think that there are people, these kind of highly technologist types, who genuinely believe that they're going to pull it off this time, that we now have the necessary technology to make it work, not understanding that human beings are still human beings at the bottom unless the full Marxist program is brought to bear, which is to remake
1: humans to need different things. Well, they are doing that. That's the goal are doing that. Transhumanism. Transhumanism is the end of that. But uh, it's frightening. Okay, so. When did critical because people are always like, you're talking about critical race theory, that's just something that was developed in Harvard for law and it's not. Tell me, tell me the truth and how to argue. What do we say when we're talking to somebody who's saying that to us? Um, I mean, they say in their own words that that's not the truth. I mean, you pick up, for example, there's
2: a book called "Critical Race Theory: An Introduction." Okay, so this book was written on the uh, in 2001 on the high school level has classroom exercises in it. Okay, and in the second paragraph of the book, they explain this critical race theory started in law and rapidly spread beyond that discipline into education, into politics, into voting strategies. People didn't know Stacey Abrams gets mentioned (laughs) right there in the book. So it it very rapidly by the by the 90s, at least, had completely metastasized into virtually every field it can colonize. It had made its way into virtually everything. So, yes, it's true that the earliest books that we would consider in the critical race theory pantheon were from Harvard Law. Derek Bell's Race, Racism in American Law, 1970. Uh, was the is really considered the first book in the subject and he's trying to get he's trying to critique you know um, desegregation of schools brown versus board of education he's trying to make more room for not just keeping affirmative action but to increase affirmative action Uh, but at that point it was very legal and very material and it hadn't blown out into this kind of huge cultural phenomenon by the 80s, it was already going in that direction. Kimberly Crenshaw completely – his Derek Bell's student, Kimberly Crenshaw, completely supplanted him. When you read his writing now, most of it even seems quaint and very formal mm-hmm. and just not indicative of what you see in any of the rest of the literature. But even that's not enough because we can go to a woman named Patricia Bidal. You've heard the racism is – Prejudice plus power definition. Mm-hmm. This comes from a woman named Patricia Bidal who also published her book about white racism in nineteen seventy and it is literally The same thing that Robin DiAngelo published as White Fragility in 2018. Wow. She says that whiteness is a form of schizophrenia and should be treated psychologically. She says you're either racist or anti-racist. She says you're either with us or you're against us. So there was an entire wing of what was called whiteness studies at the time that's ultimately part of critical race theory that was developing in parallel from the same years as this very formal legal theory. It just happened that it exploded out of the legal theory, the legal architecture, uh, because that was the movement that the critical race theorists were able to conquer most effectively. First, they they took over. They called the critical legal studies movement, which was Marxist law studies coming out of the sixties and seventies, they called it racist in the eighties. At their big conference, they had in eighty five or six, called it racist. Huge fight. Whole thing collapses. Everybody's calling each other racist. The same kind of fights people see now in their workplaces mm-hmm. after diversity training. And in 1989, Kimberly Crenshaw names this new idea, critical race theory, at a meeting outside of the University of Wisconsin at Madison in a convent where they said that a bunch of Marxists gathered under this austere room with crucifixes here and there. What an odd setting for a bunch of Marxists That's as sorry. they reminisce about it. And so um, it's just incorrect. It was... It was thoroughly in education by the 90s it was thoroughly into politics by the
1: 90s how did we miss it this long
2: it's so weird and i I don't mean it's weird that we missed it i mean the subject itself is weird you read it and it's like this doesn't make sense nobody could possibly take this seriously the only places it was being taken seriously was in like public administration as it turns out which is not a great place for people to allow academic theories to run amok or in uh, eventually in education because the marxists took over education Quite a long time ago uh, and had wormed their way in. And they do this very secretly, very insidiously using words like anti-racist that sound good and normal. Right. Very tricky uses of language, very kind of hidden. Why uh, is anti-racist so bad? Because it has nothing to do with uh, racism whatsoever uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, the definition of anti-racist is somebody who uh, agrees with the critical race theory that's what it actually is. It's somebody who is a formally trained expert, according to the critical race theory definition of formally trained and expert uh, in understanding the structural reality of so-called racism instead of racism as it really exists, which is, you know, whether individual or institutional prejudice against people based on their skin color. Um, It's all hidden in these weird linguistic
1: manipulations. So let me just ask you a few questions just as, I'm a I'm a teacher, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a parent and I'm asking questions and I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, You just said uh, anti-racist. They would respond. Well, what's wrong with being anti-race? It's just it's just you're you're either a racist or you're an anti-racist. And this is just working towards getting rid of racism. That's, I mean,
2: sounds great, right? But you have to understand what they mean by race. You have to understand what they mean by racism. I could show you on the Brandeis University website, they have a social justice glossary. They have a definition of race. It says, I can paraphrase it pretty closely from memory. I don't have it perfectly memorized, but it's it's a surprisingly seductive, they say, designation uh, created by white people originally from Europe that holds up white people the white race as the archetype of humanity for the purpose of oppression and maintaining their own privilege And so they've got a politicized definition. So when they're talking about race, they're talking about something very different. Uh, When they say this is just about ending racism, they think of racism not in terms of somebody having, you know, hateful or ignorant views based on skin color or ethnicity. They're thinking instead about a structure that they believe that white people organize society for themselves to their own benefit in the same way that the Marxists believe that capitalists organize society unjustly for their own benefit to be able to dominate everybody else. And they created this system that's self-perpetuating and in fact self, it self-hides or hiding. It, it disguises itself so that people can't see it unless they're specially trained to do so. So when you say that you're anti-racist, what that actually means is that you are actually disposed against the entire existing system. Everything from all men are created equal is to, to, you know, you have certain rights endowed by your creator that are inalienable is on the chopping block. In fact, critical race theory introduction on page 23, I happen to remember that, hmm. says, it says specifically, critical race theorists are highly suspicious of another liberal mainstay, namely rights. They are suspicious of rights in general. They don't believe people are created equally. They believe that the, 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 kind of is a fundamental blank slate picture of people we are, but the society it's not is not equal. So society is automatically structurally conditioning everybody to be privileged or oppressed and whatever relationship you have to this structure. And so what they're talking about is something completely different. So you ask, how did we miss it? Because I just had to spend four minutes explaining to to you what what they mean by a word you think you already know that you'll never ask about.
1: Of course, I want to be anti-racist. Next, nobody's going to say, what do you mean by that? Plain devil's advocate. Yeah, but that's not what I mean by that. And that's not what we're talking about. That's, you know, critical race theory. Fine. But that's not what I mean by that. What's the danger of me being anti-racist? Well, the only danger, because it depends on what you mean by it, Right.
2: So the only danger is that when you use that word and you think you mean one thing by it, the activists who are writing the policy, who have wormed their way into positions of power, mean something very different.
1: Yeah, but I'm just recognizing my privilege. What's wrong? You don't think you have privilege because you're, you're white? You don't think that gave you special privilege?
2: Well, yeah, so what's privilege then? You have to, again, it's these very subtle terms. What is is privilege? Privilege is your golden ticket to owning bourgeois racial property or bourgeois property of any other kind, to use the Marxist words for it. Whiteness as property is a paper from 1993. They consider whiteness as a form of property that white people and the people that they designate are the only people who have access to it. It's like a form of private property. What is, it is, Whiteness as Properties by Cheryl Harris. What does that mean, Whiteness as Property? It's cultural property that in particular includes, it, she goes through this whole 60-something page legal argument about what property rights are and says that whiteness functions that way, giving yourself access to the, you know, say before um, before the 13th Amendment, or the 14th Amendment, um, no, 13th Amendment, you know, white people had certain access to society, Right and 15th right. amendment gave them the right gave everybody the right to vote so having the whiteness card gave you the ability to vote before the 15th amendment before to not be a slave before the 13th mm-hmm. amendment etc later you know whites only train cars whites mm-hmm. only classrooms whites only you know facilities whatever happens to be being white gave you special access and then after the civil rights movement they believe that well there are people who don't have to think about their race all the time their society's not reminding them of race all the time they get to just be default people and then there are all of the racial minorities who have race put on them all the time you can't just be a man you have to be a black man you can't just be a man you have to be a latino man or whatever else. So the race is being imposed upon them. And so what they think is that whiteness is like this golden ticket. You're not going to be discriminated against. You're going to get to go out with the guys. You're going to get the, you know, the promotions at work, all of the best stuff in culture is reserved for you, not for other people. And whiteness operates like a form of property in that you own it. And you can exclude other people from it. That's the key provision that Harris brings up is the fundamental right to exclude as being a property right. If I own, uh, you know, this book and you're like, I'm going to have give me your book. You know, I'm saying, well, give me my book back because it's my book. I can exclude you from owning the book because it's my property. Well, it's the same thing here. I can exclude you from the good parts of society. And they point to where the Irish and the Germans were made to be, con- in Critical Race theory mm-hmm. in introduction, they say, well, they t- Irish and Germans weren't white until the Democratic Party came along and said, you can be white if you vote Democrat. That's in their book. Uh, it's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> I, d- I don't recall that portion of history. But uh, they said that the whiteness was expanded to certain people, because, but not others, because of the
1: politics that they were going to okay. embrace. So here's where it gets confusing to me. Let's say I buy into that. Yeah. In this theory, two wrongs make a right because they're doing to solve, to be an anti-racist. You have to be racist.
2: Right. You have to be race conscious and you have to intentionally discriminate. Their justification for this You are correct. (laughs) But they wouldn't see it as two wrongs making a right. What they would see it as, is you can imagine societies like this table, they think the table's tilted. White people get all the advantage, they're uphill, and everybody else, you know, all the bad stuff runs down. So the table's actually tilted. So what they think they're doing is putting, uh, putting levelers under the other side to bring it up to where it's flat. But in fact, that's not what Is happening, but they actually believe, and that's their phrase for it, that they're
1: leveling an unlevel playing field. But there are ways to level. Affirmative action was one way. I disagree, at least today. May not have in the '60s, early '70s, but um, that was that was leveling the playing field and say, let's correct this. We've been in a corrective mode for a long time, and in fact, I, I mean, at least I felt like we were getting better as a nation. And this generation now that only sees race, they didn't see race, you know? Um, my generation, we saw things as race. Later, that was all just disappearing. And now they've come in and reinforced everything is, is only about race.
2: Yeah, I think that you are correct. I totally agree with everything you said. And I will point out that this legalistic side of critical race theory that we were talking about previously. Actually, if you read their writing, they're very clear. They wanted to not just keep affirmative action going. It was turning out, they tried it. They were saying it was less necessary. People were walking it back through the 70s. They wanted not only to keep it going, but they wanted to increase it. They wanted Mm -hmm. it on an increasing trajectory. There are arguments about, well, we can do affirmative action and it should run out after, say, 20, 25 years or whatever. And they said, well, that's white supremacy. And what it was is they found a tool that allowed them to keep banging for an entitlement and they just kept banging at it and banging at it and banging at it. Meanwhile, the Marxists are coming up with all this cultural theory, cultural Marxist theory, using identity politics. that's kind of fusing into all of that. And and that's where the, the real Marxism side comes from. And it's no longer about leveling the playing field, except in their own kind of fever dreams about how society works. And this is, again, this is because they're Marxist. They believe that systems are created. And unless there's a revolution, the system is permanent. There must be a revolution. We haven't had a revolution. So the system that
1: enslave people must the still scab be. All the time. Is that why they're yes. calling people names and just p- kicking them down? Because they want a revolution. They, they A hot revolution? They will take a cultural revolution. I mean, Mark said that,
2: that violence is the midwife of revolution. But if they don't have to fire a shot and they could do it in a velvet style, I'm sure they would. Uh so they want a complete handing over of the reins of power to people who think like them to establish a dictatorship of the anti-racists that will enforce equity until it becomes spontaneous at which point we will have justice.
1: Uh-huh. All right, so before I move on from this kind of cuz I I need to take a next step with this, let's just park here for a second with Martin Luther King. Uh-huh. Everything Martin Luther King said and did is now nonsense if you're into critical race theory. Yeah. They claim to love him,
2: but... Well, they like his radical stuff that he said where he blamed the white liberals for dragging their feet. They like the extortion racket when his most frustrated moments from Birmingham jail or whatever. They like that stuff. They don't like, I have a dream. They do not like... Uh, The idea that we're going to judge by contents of character rather than color of skin. And they would say that he is I don't know that they would be so bold as to come out and say Martin Luther King was naive, but the theory certainly would believe that Martin Luther King was naive because he didn't understand that the imposition of race by the white supremacy ideology upholding the whiteness superstructure of society what that actually does is they, they have a term for this they call it structural determinism the structure of society which they think it, you know, it's a fundamental organizing principle of society is that racism that benefits white people and so that exists that's the system and we could get very Marxist theory with mm-hmm. it if you want to go deep if it's up to you but that is conditions the limits of who you are who your character what your character can be and so if you're white you're brought up in a condition of privilege and so your character is stained by the impacts of living in racial privilege if you are not white then you are put to the constantly reminded of your race and your character is actually shaped by this racism that you don't want. That's being imposed upon you by a racist structure of society. This is like I said, called structural determinism. You are morally determined by the structural reality as they would call it of the world, which is conditioned by the fact that there's a racial upper class and a racial lower class and dialectical opposition. I told you we can go deep and therefore you can't judge somebody by the contents of their character without taking into account the fact that society is shaping their character for them through the structural determinism, because this is how Marxists think about the world. Everything's a structure, and the structure is permanent until revolution. And so, Clarence, Thomas is bad. Why? Because, well, because he doesn't. He, so, Iona Pressley famously said a year or so ago, that we don't want any more black faces who don't want to be black voices. We don't want any more brown faces who don't want to be brown voices. So structural determinism shapes your character, and if you have your shaped character, they this is a term in their own books. They, it says it gives rise to a unique voice of color. The critical race theorists have figured out what the authentic expression of what it means to be every single race in this structural racist situation that they think characterizes the world and if you aren't spouting critical race theory then you are somehow selling out. You either have false consciousness of some kind, you have internalized your racism, you've accepted that this is just how it is, you're trying to curry white favor, you act white. They accused Obama of acting white mm-hmm. to get the presidency. You have to act white so that the white supremacist society will accept you. It's always some cynical, self serving, or willfully ignorant, blind. Uh, the reason why if you aren't a black face being a black voice in other words if you're not a critical race theorist speaking authentically according to what they say your voice should be then you are actually reproducing the system just like you had you know people who are within the working class the petite bourgeoisie the kulaks who were reproducing The bourgeois ideology, even though they were technically farmers or technically machinists or whatever else, it's the exact same mentality. So Clarence Thomas or Larry Elder, who's now the black face of white supremacy, they're not saying critical race theory things. Therefore, they are not authentically representing their experience and the structural reality of white supremacy. Therefore, they are actually upholding white supremacy, keeping the system in place and then that that makes them the enemy. This is just evil. It's I can't think of something more evil,
1: really, except the transhumanist stuff. Yeah, and that we'll hopefully get to a little bit of that. Um, the this is I mean how how you know everybody likes a happy warrior. Yeah. How does this continue on? Um person after person year after year when it is all about vengeance and and hatred and uh,
2: how does that happen well th- two main features one is that it uses the language in a manipulative way where you don't realize that you're using specialist language because you're using words that you know like diversity or whatever you know that word like you're you're going to be in a meeting and they say well I think we should put a line in there that says You know, let's honor diversity. Everybody says, okay, you know, why? But they don't know what diversity means. Diversity means that you have a bunch of people who look different, who have their authentic voices of color. Mm -hmm. And so that they're actually commissars. And so it sneaks its way in. A commissar is somebody who is there to apply the ideology, to make sure that the institution is made increasingly compliant, or the individuals connected to an institution are made increasingly compliant with the ideology. Uh, In this case, race Marxism. Uh, so one way is that linguistic manipulation. The other is that these are very subtle, emotional, uh, I hate to use a big word, but epistemological, knowledge-based, and even psychological manipulations. They, uh, the, the ability to accuse somebody of being racist, right, immediately puts them on a back foot if that's seen as credible by other people. So you accuse somebody of being racist. Maybe they doubt themselves. Maybe other people doubt them as somebody credible. They say, you know, well, he's just motivated by this terrible moral Mm -hmm. failure. So your moral authority gets diminished. Shelby Steele was very good in white guilt, talking about how that has worked. And maybe you get past that. Maybe people are like, no, I can speak for Glenn. He's a good guy. And they say, well, he doesn't even understand how racism works. He doesn't even understand that it's a system that transcends what individuals do. He doesn't even understand it. So now you're too dumb. They are the sophisticated, smart professor types who are smarter than everybody else. And so now you lack epistemic authority. Other people will think, well, Glenn's got his heart in the right place. He's just simple, right? Or they tell you, we're not teaching critical race theory in the schools. It's just teaching honest history. You're crazy if you think we're going to teach a law school theory in schools. And they try to make people feel or appear insane, like conspiracy theorists or something like that. And so they drain people of the authority needed in especially institutional settings where people have to be polite and professional and interact with one another.
1: Uh, How much did Saul Alinsky play into this? Because it's a lot of this stuff that we're seeing, which is really CRT, a a lot of this, the isolation, the shutting down, the bullying, all of that stuff is Saul Alinsky.
2: Yes. In particular, he was very influential in the way that the media dogpiles over these issues. Um, They have a a little bit more abstruse approach to to radical activism, but rather a lot. You know, the idea, for example, was it 13 rule number 13, if I remember correctly, is the one where you're supposed to freeze the target and isolate them. Mm -hmm. uh, And what is it? Individuals fold faster than institutions. And so what do they do with the diversity training? They put people kind of on a hot seat. Right. They make people go around the room and they confess. Everybody has to confess the racism that they've, they've felt like in front of people. This uh, is, the, the, didn't China do this in their cultural revolution? Ex- I mean. Yeah, actually, you know, you bring up Alinsky. I, I would much prefer to bring up Mao. The, this is a complete reproduction in a slightly different cultural context and with more Americanized tools of the
1: Chinese Cultural Revolution. We, we, all, we all know how that ended, and we know that it ended in a lot of bloodshed. Let how? me actually tell you
2: how profound that is. Okay. So Mao separated the people into 10 classes, right? Five of them were categorized as black, and those were bad. Those were people like uh, landlords, mm-hmm. rich farmers, um, counter-revolutionaries, just a bad elements, I think, or bad influences. Mm-hmm. So that's us, I guess. And then the red categories were things like, you know peasants and uh, laborers and revolutionaries, uh, communists, you know, things like this. And he creates these 10 categories of people. And so if you're a kid coming to school and your dad owns a, you know, some property, mm-hmm. oh, you're the son of a landlord, black identity. But if you become a revolutionary, you can become a red identity. What do we do now? straight white male black 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 identity bad privilege you have these privileged identities but imagine if you were bisexual or imagine if you transitioned now you have a white or a red, a red identity imagine if you became an ally you must become an ally allyship is key red identity it is a perfect reproduction of mao's cultural revolution they bully people based on identity categories they're straight white male etc fit you know they've got the whole pantheon of identity categories mentally healthy and then they tell you you have different pathways out of that bullying we're going to bully you we're going to tell you how you're privileged how you're bad you need to check your privilege but over here you have all kinds of things that you can adopt you can become an ally you can show up to all the meetings you can become an activist you can adopt a trans identity and you just see this incredible pressure into the revolutionary identities. It's not enough for you to be trans though. You have to be politically trans. Uh, It's not enough for you to have black skin. You have to be politically black for it to count. You have to be a black voice. And it is a perfect reproduction, a perfect reproduction of Mao Zedong's cultural revolution
1: program. That ended in a lot of bloodshed.
2: Nobody knows how many, but maybe a hundred million or more. How does this one
1: not end in that? (laughs)
2: if it keeps going, um, one of a few ways are the only ways out, one of which is that the uh, scary oligarchs swoop in and basically shut it down once they figure out that enough uh chaos is happening that they can take over and do you think that the critical race theorists who are wholly disruptive are going to get their way no they're going to get put in their pod with a low social credit score until they play along in a unity program that they unroll you know unroll connected to their social credit system eventually that's one way with no bloodshed uh another one is um that it gets pushed back but if it continues people will die and people are dying this is already happening in medicine. They're already prioritizing medical care based on race, using critical race theory as the logic. Our medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine is probably the worst. The Lancet is, is pretty well contaminated. Boston Medical Journal is not as bad. But these major medical journals are now, I mean, you remember the fake papers that yeah. I wrote a number mm-hmm. of years ago. I read the things that are in medical journals now, and I think... We couldn't have written that like that's so preposterous, but these are medical journals and people not just will, but are dying. People are being denied transplants. The vaccine is not race obviously, but it's the same. you got, you get a bad identity versus a good identity. It's the exact same cultural revolution logic people. I think honestly in the United States and Canada, at least alone, I, I would predict that millions of people, if we stop the logic of this now, Millions of people will unnecessarily die because of screwed up medical care or failed medical care because of the Lysenkoism that has taken over medicine through things like critical race theory and so on. The Lysenkoism? Lysenko. Trofim Lysenko was the biologist that, that uh, the Soviets had, and he believed in a crackpot theory of how plants grow. He thought that if you put a whole bunch of plants close together, they'd cooperate better, they'd share resources, and in fact, you know, crappy... Things like corn would turn into good things like rye uh, through the, you know, the Soviet cooperation mm-hmm. and millions upon millions starved. And if scientists tried to challenge him and said, this isn't how biology works, this isn't how agriculture works, they killed those people or threw them in a Siberian gulag or something like this. And so I think that, you know, how do, does, does this not end in, in massive bloodshed? Well, I don't know that they're going to pick up the gun. I don't know. It's not really their style, but millions
1: will die. Well, just with what they're doing, and we can talk about this later, the, with the Great Reset, millions will die. Millions. Millions will die. Many millions. Yeah. Probably have, actually, yeah. already. All right. So let me, let me go back to, to critical race. And race, um, race Marxism seems to be using a few things. I, I'm not sure which one... Is using the other. Mm-hmm. I thought for a long time it was Marxism that was running this and all these crazy Marxists. I think they're useful idiots. I think the the governments and the powers that be, mainly the corporations, which I've always trusted. Yeah, you know, I've always hated it. Oh, I'm, yeah, I work for the corporation, aka the government. Those dystopian movies. I've never believed that. Yeah, there's no doubt about it now. <laughs> I know. So. Are, how is this, I mean, they're, they're using, I guess, the Marxism to destroy capitalism, but then at some point, everybody's going to realize, oh my gosh, they've made themselves the lord and the lady of the manor and we're the serfs. And so is that guy from Antifa, if he's still around. Yeah. So is the Marxist professor.
2: They're all in the digital gulag together uh so <laughs> yes in fact i now think there's a circle of useful idiots in fact i don't think there's a lot of difference i did i thought i hit the point where i believed i thought this was the marxists marxists have figured out how to use race to destabilize society and then i look at the world economic forum and then to look at the corporations and they're all you know coca-cola is telling us that we have to be less white straight out of robin d'angelo and I'm like but that's fascism you know public private partnership that's Fascism by definition. So you've got the governments and the NGOs and the and the corporations doing working together so that each can do what the others can't to exert control. And now I'm going to maybe blow your mind because I understand this as a religion. And if it's a religion, they obviously have high level theological views, including about eschatology, about the end of the world, about how they're going to achieve their utopia ultimately. By the way, the revolution is rapture. If you need a parallel. Yeah. Um, And then there's a a tribulation and then eventually you get to to heaven, but the kingdom, I should say. And so anyways, I now think that what happened is that the Marxists figured out that they had to incorporate dialectically everything, dialectical materialism. The dialectic is their program of taking opposites and incorporating them and pretending that they have been brought into one higher level concept. They figured out that they had to incorporate fascism to make communism work. And so how did they do this? Well, Mao did his thing. The CCP runs China into a disaster. A couple of leaders later, you have Deng Xiaoping working with Kissinger and so on, and they open up the markets of China. But it's all at the pleasure of the party. It's all state capitalism, which is by definition fascism. So what do you have there? You have a communism with fascism inside of it. Communo-fascism. So what is the dialectical opposite of communo-fascism? It's a fascism with communism inside of it. Fascio-communism. So you have East Asia: We just don't have Oceania to always be at war with East Asia yet. So if you make China into this behemoth, a communism with fascism running inside of it, so that it solves a production problem of Soviet disaster of communism, because it has now an open market, that's running state capitalism, but still very wealth-generating market. Mm-hmm. And then you can create the opposite of that in the West. If you can create a fascist oligarchy that decides to, sure, the the people in the top are going to be the lords and ladies of the new aristocracy. And we are all going to be the serfs mined for our data and our pod while we enjoy our mealworms and crickets. But it'll be equitable. So if you take that fascist structure and stick a communism inside of it, and then those are the two world powers Not exactly enemies, but frenemies, Mm -hmm. a communism with fascism inside next to a fascism with communism inside. And you let those things run next to each other. The natural process of the dialectic will eventually fuse all of it. And what you'll end up with is the kingdom. You'll end up with communism that works this time. And I think that that's the program. And so they are definitely using the race Marxists because the Marxists are extraordinarily destabilizing. But the people who are funding this, the people who are dumping millions upon millions of dollars, billions of dollars into critical race theory to drag it out of the university where it should have just kind of languished because it's stupid. It got funded out of the university. That's how it didn't spontaneously get out of the university. Bags and bags and bags of cash got dumped into fueling these movements, especially around the Occupy Wall Street time. Good heavens. To protect the banks. And so the fascist with the communist inside was born. And th- that's the objective. And they, because th- they, th- this is their magic. It's their faith. They believe that if you put those two opposites next to each other, and they're the only two opposites, that eventually the dialectical process will average it all out, but raise it up to a higher level. The Marxist word for that is sublate. The German word is Aufheben, which is the word that, that Hegel and Marx use over and over. You, Aufheben, you're going to raise up to a higher level. Uh, And we're going to end up with this perfectly kind of world hegemonic one government that is fascistic in ways, communist in other ways, but everybody's going to be equitable, except there's going to be the top tier, of course, because... Only the, the, what do you call them now, stakeholders? The yeah. word changes every few years. Yeah. You know, the, the, only the enlightened are going to be the ones who are going to administer it all and make sure that it stays on, on the track. The creative class, I think, is another t- term for these people. Uh, of course, Marx thought that you come to see yourself as a creator through the process of socializing yourself mm-hmm. uh, into Marxism. And so the creative class. And so this is what I actually think is going on. So it's almost like a circle of both fascists and communists using each other and in the end one of them has to win. Well, I mean, I they're the same. They're the same thing. The goal actually will be that there's no longer any need for corporate ownership. There's no longer any need for government. It's going to be a stateless, classless society. It's perfectly equitable except of course the stakeholders who are going to make sure that it all stays running smoothly. And so it's not that either one will win. I think that they're going to average out.
1: Wow. All right, so let's switch to The Great Reset. That's how we get there. Yeah. The Great Reset. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> talk about Klaus Schwab a bit. Oh,
2: man, I was hoping I didn't have to talk. He's awful. Um, he's straight out of Central Casting, as you can tell. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> I mean, you put him in a brown shirt, and you've you got him. Yeah,
2: I, it, he looks like a Bond villain. He talks like a Bond villain. He acts like a Bond villain. But since the 70s, he's had this vision, he claims, in 71 or something is when he started what became the World Economic Forum. He's had this vision of a new form of capitalism, a sustainable form of capitalism, uh, a circular economy that, you know, if you think about that for a minute, you realize that's probably not going to work out. And we're going to now have all these partnerships between government entities and corporate entities so everybody's now working hand in hand instead of competing with one another
1: which is fascism which is fascism and then doesn't seem like anyone on the left knows what fascism is
2: well fascism according to the communist dictionary is not being a communist that's literally what they think of fascism every if we go to the neo marxists not to get too weird but in the 60s this is the neo marxists are where schwab got a lot of his ideas and so if we look at, say, Marcuse in the 60s, what you have with Marxism kind of before that is this belief that you know history is grinding toward the kingdom, toward the utopia, toward communism. It's going to unfold. The dialectical materialism is going to get us there. We just don't know how or how fast. So there's a heaven in the Marxist religion, but there's no hell. Marcuse comes along and says, in repressive tolerance... The whole of the post-fascist era is an era of clear and present danger. Capitalism is still going to devolve, but it can go not, it doesn't just go to the utopia, to communism. It has two possible trajectories. It could either go to communism or it could go to fascism. So therefore, everything that's not moving it toward communism is moving it toward fascism. If you read the Dialectic of Enlightenment, Horkheimer and Adorno from 47-47, same theme. The liberal system itself tends toward fascism, but there's, a, there's an off-ramp into communism. And so now there's a heaven and a hell in their theology. And so uh, when, when you look at it in that regard, you see that they think that everything that, that, court, that goes with their goals is good, and everything that doesn't is fascism. So even literal fascism is not fascism. But truckers showing up in Ottawa to say, give us our freedom back is fascism. So they, their logic, so communists share your uh, vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. Their words all contain agendas. Their words all mean something different. Fascism, even racism, what it just means is that you aren't going along with their program. That's in in practice, all it means
1: and all the rest is because just, they 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 call us fascists for saying we should have freedom of speech. You you know, Joe Rogan should not be taken off the air. Let it be heard. Well, that's what Marcuse
2: said. He said that if we would have stopped, if we would have withdrawn democratic tolerance from Hitler, we would have avoided Auschwitz in a world war. That's an exact quote from repressive tolerance from 65. He then goes on and says, because we live in a pl- permanent state of clear and present danger for fascism the whole of the post-fascist era he says then we must he says withdraw tolerance from movements from the right not just he says at the level of action and deed, but also at the level of the word he says that the idea can't even be allowed to enter the mind of the right-wing person he says now to be sure this is censorship even pre-censorship so they want to take away your cognitive liberty. You can think whatever you want, as long as you think what they say is okay. You can say whatever you want if you can only think the approved things. So we're going to prevent the dangerous idea from ever even entering the mind. The dangerous idea being anything, not their program, because everything else goes to fascism, or like the Nazis. That's what they think. And so he says, but it's justified because we live in this clear and present danger situation. Everything that they will brand as right-wing must be censored pre-censored you it's not even that you shouldn't be allowed to say it you shouldn't be allowed to hear it and if they can prevent it you shouldn't be allowed to think it and this is
1: exactly their literature. so i read uh from critic I'm, i'm sorry from um the wef one of their scholars said by 2030 everything i say everything i hear everything i see Everything I think and even my dreams are monitored at all times. That's the idea. That's the idea. And it's all going to be subject to their ESG-based
2: social credit system that is going to, as Herbert Marcuse, just I'm telling you, it's Marcuse's logic. He, He writes this essay on liberation in 69. The first chapter, it's in four chapters. The first chapter is a biological foundation for socialism. And how are we supposed to get this? How are you supposed to get a biological foundation for socialism? He says we have to bring the new morality and introject it into people until they don't know how to live without it. And so you condition everything that they can possibly consume. Their, everything they read, everything that they see, It's all, every advertisement they get, it's all determined by these algorithms. So it's constantly trying to condition you in a particular way. Even your dreams, if they have like the things and whatever, the devices that they want to hook up, mm-hmm. the thing they want to implant in your head with a Neuralink. You, know, you hook your brain straight to the internet. And constantly, constantly, the objective becomes to introject the new world morality mm-hmm. through social credit. That you aren't able to participate in society unless you are going along with their program. That's why I used the phrase digital gulag earlier. We're not going to gulags unless we're really screw-ups. We're going to be in digital gulags. We're going to be under house arrest and forced to use our phone all the time if there's still phones or hooked to the Neuralink or Metaverse or whatever it is that they require Constantly to what was the Gulag? The Gulag wasn't a concentration camp. It was a re education camp. The goal to be constantly to re educate, to introject the new morality until people don't know how to live without it. And then you'll have a new man who's biologically suited for socialism. And ESG is the name of the social credit system that they cooked up for corporations so they can do it in a multi step program
1: to get it from corporations eventually to individuals. What's more dangerous? CRT? Or the Great Reset, or are they hand in hand.
2: Well, I mean, the S social, social justice, whichever one you want to have it, is fueled for the present by CRT. So, critical race theory is the logic, at least for the racial component of Correct. social dynamics and social uh, politics. Uh, the, the critical race theory is the thing that's informing how they're going to determine who's behaving correctly and right. not correctly. So. Without critical race theory, they would have to have a completely different social program with regard to race. They've chosen critical race theory because it's fundamentally so arbitrary and it's fundamentally seems like it's oriented toward justice and very subtle and fools people. But it's ultimately uh, without that, they're going to need a completely different social program for the S-score Uh, to replace that, at least with regard to race. But you have queer theory with regard to sex, sexuality, and gender. You have fat studies and disability studies and da-da-da-da-da, all of them, uh, with regard to all these social politics. So these identity Marxist politics are the program that they've adopted for what good social behavior looks like. Now, on the other side of them implementing a social credit system i think critical race theory is too stupid and too poisonous and too divisive and too destabilizing i don't think they're going to continue to use it they will continue to use the justification of equity though and that's ultimately what leads them to use critical race theory so they're hand in glove in that sense but it's all i mean by the way the word justice we said social justice the word justice is the updated word for communism it is the updated word for communism climate justice means climate communism. Mm -hmm. equity is the updated word for socialism i mean it's totally literally equity is a managed state of affairs in which equal outcomes are produced justice is what happens when that becomes spontaneous this is exactly marx's model of installing a dictatorship of the proletariat that ensures equal outcomes socialism
1: until it becomes spontaneous no see the problem with marxism is it goes against all of human nature. Yeah, it's, it's a complete inversion of human nature. Correct. It's a catastrophe. So you're not optimistic that this works at all, right? Oh, it doesn't work at all. Yeah, it okay, will okay. not work. If implemented, it will not work. And how long do you think? I mean, first of all, do we beat this before it happens? We should.
2: It would be far easier. Because the power of a social credit system is immense. It's not impossible, I think, to throw one off until you start getting the, you know, head implants, at which point are your thoughts even your own? You know, how do you know? Uh, It's not impossible to throw it off, but it's way easier before they have that tool of social control than it is after they have that tool of social control. So how do you stop it? Uh, Well, right now, there's not much of an individual social credit system, which means ultimately the individuals who run corporations uh, can still make decisions. And that I bring up corporations specifically because corporations are where the ESG is actually applied. We have a corporate social credit system. The way that it works is it gains you access to asset management, investment money, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That's not set in stone. There are other ways that that can be done, but it takes people with courage to stand up and say, this is not the road that we need to be going down. This is not actually best best practices. And we don't need to be governed by technocratic stakeholders who are going to decide what the correct corporate policy is for us, you know, from Davos or wherever. And so throwing it off there is is a starting place. Now, are we going to find people with courage? Probably not. They probably signed things, <laughs> making the courage hard to find. But that's where people who have access, say, you know, perhaps senators or something like this, start asking the kinds of questions that need to be asked. What did you know about this and when did you know it? Did you go into a huge mortgage with people knowing that financial instruments and ownership are going to be destroyed in five years? I,
1: I think they do. I mean, I because think that's
2: it's- fraud. And what was it? Edward Dowd, he worked for BlackRock, right? He's recently did, did a podcast, I think, with Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. And so he's coming out and just saying a lot of these kinds of things. correct? And he's, of course, saying that this is a, a terrible thing to do. We don't want to go this way. And ultimately, he said also, though, that fraud or corruption is the legal leveler. All of the stuff that, that has legal authority behind it loses it if it's shown to have been done in fraud. And so, getting that exposure can break everything. What did these bank, lend, what did the lenders know? Car manufacturers, did they know that we're going to go to self-driving, autonomous, electric vehicles? But they sold you a car on a five-year lease anyway. Did they know that? If they did, they entered into a fraudulent contract with you they you were not given the information that you should have been given of course we're going to see all kinds of fraud is going to bust out around these pharmaceutical companies um but the big ones right now are going to be of course the major industries and the finance sector overwhelmingly and perhaps i don't know what levels of fraud and collusion you have in big tech but they're
1: colluding straight with the government you know i have a theory on this that you know the reason why we're talking about basic minimum income is not about communism or Marxism. It's because tech knows what's coming. the the the, the industri- fourth industrial revolution is is happening right now, yes. and 2030 it will be turned inside out. People won't know what to do. How do I retrain? Forty percent of the jobs are going to be gone. We'll have a loss of meaning. Everything else, and when that kind of stuff happens. There's um, people look for somebody to blame and it will be tech that they blame because they'll see tech taking their jobs. Yes. Right now, the politicians and the banks know we have screwed this up so badly that they're going to come for us. So they go to tech and say, protect us now. We'll work with you uh, and you protect us now and you silence that stuff. Because after they're done with us, they'll come for you. Yep. So let's just lock it all in place.
2: No, I think that this is correct as well. I think this is why they've pulled the trigger kind of as clumsily as they have. Actually, it's so kind of glaring. This could have been right? done much more smoothly and much more secretively. Maybe
1: Trump disrupted that for them and caused it. Oh, I to. think that's why I- Trump was was the, the corporations? They all said uh, absolutely. They worked to get him out. Absolutely. I think they knew this is our plan, and he won't do it.
2: See, this I, I completely agree with you. Though they they have screwed up the financial system. It's
1: probably going to collapse. You know? Did, did you hear the news from the Federal Reserve? It Came out last week. No one is talking about it. Oh no! The Federal Reserve has a two-year moratorium where they can't be FOIA'd. Uh oh. So in 2012, after 2008 to 2010, after they finished TARP and all that stuff, they came out in 2010 and said, we, we, we um, just put on our own papers $5 trillion, and we gave the banks $5 trillion. Well, I, for one, was like, did any of that money go overseas? Where did you do that? Who yeah. got that money? So somebody, um, uh, an, an economic group, filed a FOIA in 2012 well they took it all the way to the supreme court and the supreme court the fed was arguing for national security this can't be released for at least 10 years well we're at 2022 it's just been released oh wow they lied to us oh what a shock yeah i know two and a half trillion dollars went to citibank alone that's in effect nationalizing citibank yeah they, print, they printed and put on their books not $5 trillion, they put $30 trillion, and it went all over the world. And I believe they're still doing it, and that's what all this inflation is coming. We are way out of line, and... The dollar is going to collapse. That's why they're coming after Bitcoin. They yeah. got to have a Fed coin. Fed coin. Yeah. And you can't do MMT without controlling you and every dollar. That's right. That's right. I, I'm completely convinced that,
2: that while, I, you know, we talked about the aspirational side of the Great Reset, there's a more base side as well. And the more base side is that these people are frauds and criminals and it's all coming out. And there some of it's going to be collapse and they need a social control mechanism in place
1: that's as tight as the Chinese one before the pitchforks yes. come out. Yes. And I think that's why they're making they're making, you know, they've got their they've got the Democrats who are being who are either in on it. And I think most Democrats now find them in a, themselves in a position like, wait, uh, that wasn't. But it can't be because now. They were part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you don't want to admit that that's human nature. Right. So you have that. That's why they're going after everyone who votes differently and making them into terrorist. That's why we if you don't take the vaccine, that's why we should consider cutting you off from medicine. Let you die. Maybe put you in a camp. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they They know. I have this
2: really bizarre belief not to get too theoretical out of that. I don't believe that we ever actually had a marketplace of ideas. I don't think it actually arrived. I think we ended up getting an aristocracy of ideas through these expert class, whether it's big government, whether it's, you know, uh, it universities. Began in the progressive era. Yeah. I think that we've had an aristocracy of mm-hmm. ideas. And what happened is that the Internet has unleashed the flame of the Enlightenment exactly a second time. Right. And I'm telling you, these people are frauds, and they're criminals, and they're, they're jokes, and it, it, it's, it's coming for them. They are going to lose all of their power. They're going to be exposed for crimes the likes of which we've never seen in human history.
1: You, you are 100% right. This, is, this, I believe, is the biggest crime in all of human history. It's like five of the biggest crimes yeah. in human history mixed into one. Yeah, And when it when it when it all hits, if they don't have us all in cages, um, they're in trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. They're in a lot of trouble. And if they do have us all in cages, we're in a lot of trouble because, you know, I saw this. I don't know if you saw this clip from the World Economic Forum. One of the elites said, you know, we did this uh, study and uh, the good news is the elites trust the uh, other elites more than ever before. Yeah. But the others (laughs) don't trust us anywhere on earth. Yeah. You better have a rock solid prison everywhere. Yeah. Because there will be a revolution. Yeah.
2: That's exactly correct. You know, that, I put that video on my my own Twitter, even and just my, I guess I don't have a little account anymore, but yeah, I know. it's getting there. Uh, <laughs> but it had something like way over a million, maybe over two million views on, on just from my account alone. So people have seen this. People know that it resonated. Why? Because the elites think that they're better than everybody and everybody
1: realizes that now and we don't like them. I, I, we don't trust them at all. I think I, I put your book in the same category as mine. As a Rosetta Stone. Once it clicks, it, it's, you know, red pill, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. You're like, oh my gosh. I I, see, and everything makes sense. It all makes sense. It it all everybody's makes sense. walking
2: around like they're taking crazy pills. Yep. Um, I actually think this book is going to be the last necessary word on critical race theory. It's not an interesting subject as somebody who's read like virtually all of the major works in it it's not a very interesting subject Uh, and once people understand that it's actually just Marxism and it's point is to destroy society and this book makes it very clear
1: that's it's so clear if you read if you would just read the goals of BLM I know Right? I know. Just what, reads the goals. Well, I'm not for all that. I'm just, well, you're marching with them. You're marching with them. You're funding them. You're empowering them. them. Yeah. The, the corruption alone is sickening. Yeah. But their goals end the family. That's right.
2: End the family. And, and that's a Marxist goal from forever. I mean, Marx himself railed on the idea of the family as a, as a means by si- which the
1: capitalism is reproduced and you're seeing it with the education um you know department of education and all of the teachers yep. you don't have the skill to raise your child what do you mean you want to know what we're teaching
2: <laughs> yeah. i mean
1: end the family and the family and replace it with the the government and the
2: institution that they run they control they program your children to be that new man with the new interjected morals it's it's incredibly scary that it's got to this point and that people haven't sounded the alarm and people haven't stood up. And also, I mean, the problem we face now is that people still don't name names. You know, you can't just say they, they, they eventually we named Klaus Schwab. Now
1: I'm um, talked, talked uh, George Soros, Joe Biden, John Kerry. Yeah. But nobody uh,
2: talks about, for example, Gerald and Ronnie Chan. You've heard of the Harvard TH Chan school of public health, Right. Which published, by the way, thanks to my trolling, a argument that two plus two can equal five. Sometimes during a pandemic, where people thought they might be overcounting, Th Chan School of Public Health. There is an exposé in the Harvard Crimson, written by a young person there at Harvard, pointing out that the entire entity was funded on a single, like half billion dollar donation from Ronnie Chan and his uh, brother, I think, or cousin, something, Gerald. And it's named after the patriarch of that family. Well, these guys are movers and shakers and olives. Nobody talks about James Riotti and the Lippo Group. Nobody talks about these people. These people are dumping rivers of money into it. I just saw today, literally in the, in the dressing room, before I came out here with you, that the Chans, Gerald and Ronnie Chan, just bought another school of public health at UMass, $125 million more million Why the, are they the, buying the, our the, public schools of public health
1: the, during a pandemic? The question always comes back to, yeah, why would they? They're making so much money. Why would they do anything that would hurt the system that they're rich in? Well, different beliefs for different people. But ultimately, if
2: we go back to what at least the Great Reset is or represents, is to create a new economy that's perfectly stable and sustainable. It won't have boom and bust cycles anymore. Everything will be controlled. We were promised that in 1913 with the Federal Reserve. It's a complete crackpot. Ugh. it's a complete fabrication. It's not going to work, but it doesn't prevent the people who are pushing it from at least pretending that it'll work. Maybe I said there were true believers earlier. I think some of them are, or at least very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they also I mean, know, they know, that know they're, they're there's nothing.
1: I mean, they're, they also, out, they're out of bullets. That's right. They, they also yeah. know it's their only, uh, their only hope. Yeah. Um, I said the other day that, Because if you, you looked into the great reset and what they're planning on the, the farming and the food distribution. And I mean, yeah, are you kidding me? I mean, you're going to redesign everything from the soil to the plate on the table. Yeah. All of it's going to be redesigned and you have confidence that you're smart enough to figure all that out. Right. Right. In a few
2: years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, by 2030. While reorganizing fundamentally what it means to be human. Right. uh, At the same time, while forcing people to live in smart cities and
1: very high population density. And put up with brownouts and everything else that is coming our way. Yeah. Um, Because we can only use green energy, which doesn't work. Right. I mean, it, it might someday, but you don't just unplug everything else. Where is this magic you know, outlet that just got free power and plenty of it for, it's just crazy. It's anyway, totally crazy. It's crazy. Um, uh, I said that we will see in my lifetime, if this goes through a global holodomor. Yep. You, you agree? Yeah, totally. Absolutely.
2: Because this starvation if is going to be know, out of control.
1: If you don't know what a holodomor is, you need to look it up, but it happened in the Ukraine under the Soviets and they killed, what, 9 million people? 9 million, in, yeah. In, a, in less than a year or a year. Yeah. And, and, it,
2: and then Walter Durante, well, first, yes. Gareth Jones exposes this, writing for something in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Walter Durante, working under Stalin for the New York Times, writes the infamous uh, article for the New York Times, Ukrainians hungry, not starving, wins the Pulitzer Prize for it. And our illustrious New York Times has never disclaimed that prize. Just like they haven't disclaimed the 1619 project prize that they won. Nine, nine million nine people. Nine million people. Just for Ukraine. Yeah. Just Ukraine. And
1: nobody knows about it. Nobody talks about
2: it. We, it's part of you said, how has nobody noticed this? You know, we hear from the, say, critical race theorists all the time that we have whitewashed education, Right. Yeah, we have. We don't. We have red-washed education. (laughs) Oh, very good. (laughs) The communists have organized education. We know more—I mean, I had to read, not complaining, so many of the books about the Nazi regime. We learned all about fascism and Nazism, national socialism. But nobody even knows the black book of communism. Nobody, nobody never heard about. All I knew is that communism is some kind of an economic system that we didn't learn much about coming out of high school. Even, I mean, granted I majored in STEM, so different, but I didn't study it in college either. Uh, I learned nothing about Holodomor. I learned nothing about Trofim Lysenko. I learned nothing about any of the antics that Mao pulled that killed millions or he, got rid of all the birds, for example. Uh, you know, just completely redwashed education where they don't teach the horrors. I'm glad we learned the horrors of Nazism. I am too. We don't learn the horrors of communism, and we should. That, that I think a robust anti-communist education, you know, Trump came out with his patriotic education. Okay, like whatever. I understand that that triggered the crap out of the left and they went berserk because the word patriotic has been stained by their redwashing of our country. Patriotic education fine, but what must it, what must it can include above all else in all countries in the world is anti-communist education. People need to know what communism is, where it came from, what it believes and what it has done and why those things will happen every time it's tried.
1: If we had an actual free market, I would suggest to you that this podcast would be in the millions within a week. But because we don't have a free market and we are throttled every step of the way, yep. we've said all of the wrong things. We have. And used all of the keywords. We didn't say that the vaccines don't work yet. <laughs>
2: well, now you have. I saw the data today, though, the lockdowns uh, university study, I forget, John Hopkins maybe, showed. reduction in mortality for all of those lockdowns. 0.2% is the upper estimate for how many lives lockdowns that crushed the world might have actually saved.
1: 0.2%. Well, but it was the people with Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and all of those players that gathered, that gave the plan, handed it to the president... Here's we just war-gamed this. Yeah. What f- it's truly frightening is last month they just same people just war-gamed global economic collapse. Yeah. This is going to be triggered by a cyber attack. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. 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 They war-gamed that one too. Yeah. Yeah. James, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for, I mean, telling the truth. I mean, and being here. I know the first time you were here. You were a little like, I can not believe I'm in Klebeck's studio. (laughs) Uh, And I I just really love the honesty of you and the people around you just willing to tell the truth. You gotta do it. Have to. Have to. Thank you. Thanks. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people.